Genesis 26, 18, 18 to 35. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzath and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, now, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Shiva. There, therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Sheba to this day. And when Isaac, uh, excuse me, and when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basimat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. In verses 18, 18, um, well, just verse 18, we have a reminder of those wells that were stopped up. That, that which happened in verse 15, 15 and 18, those wells which had been stopped up, well, he um, gave them names, the names that uh, Abraham, his father, had. Um, so those are the old wells. But then new wells are dug, verses 19 and following. And when they were dug, there's a quarrel between the herdsmen of Gerar and the herdsmen of Isaac. They, they, want, they both envy them, they both want them, but they actually do belong to Isaac's servants because they are the ones who uh, dug them up. In verse 20, to remember this conflict, the one is called Essek, Essek meaning contention. And in 21, when another one was... Um, Doug, it was called Sitna because the quarreling or the enmity did not end, meaning enmity. So 
he commemorates this conflict like that. But then in 22, two conflicts, but now no conflict in verse 22. When there's no conflict there, he names it Rehoboth, which means spacious or broad, broad places. It has to do with God giving a wide and spacious place for them to be able to live and carry on their their ranching and farming activities. So he gives he says this when God gives him peace from this conflict, at last the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now he's not meaning that they're going to be in the land permanently because he knows he's not supposed to be there permanently. He was there temporarily during the time of the famine and until God directs him to return to Canaan proper instead of the land of the Philistines. But he does rejoice that now God has made room for them and for them to be plentiful and and fruitful. We see from this train of events that there is difficulty, difficulty upon difficulty, and then there's blessing or deliverance from the difficulty. This is how God works. He puts us through difficulties to try our faith, to test our faith. And in the end, He intends to bless us. This often happens in physical ways in order to encourage us to press on. We cannot expect it always to be a blessing. And we should not even be so um, discouraged or pessimistic that it's always a curse and always a difficulty that we face. It's actually both. If we just pay attention to what's going on and examine our experiences by the Word of God. If we examine them by the Word of God, we will understand correctly, which Isaac does, giving the credit, the blessing to God. Notice also in 22, the implication. At last the Lord has made room for us, which implies God was at work in not making room for him earlier. Right. Yeah, the people were causing the problems, but ultimately it came from God through those people. So at this point, God stopped using other people to bring the tests and the trials and the temptations to Isaac and his people. It was God who, who was at work. 23 to, uh, no, before we move on to 23, Um, To reiterate this point of tests and trials, remember in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice or exult in our tribulations, knowing that they produce perseverance, they produce endurance. And in James chapter 1, 2 to 4 and verse 12, he says the same, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord will give to those who love him. And the same in 2 Peter 1, 1 to 11, that we, we have in endurance and perseverance that leads to a proper understanding and fulfillment of love, Christian love in the sight of God and toward other men. This is the way of the Christian life. To, to have difficulties that lead to deliverance or blessings. 23 to 25. 
Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. These words are not really new words. These words and phrases, we have seen these already throughout Genesis, which reminds us that God is often giving us in a nutshell what should be at the forefront of our mind. These would be, if we were to say, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even if you read carefully throughout the Old Testament, even into the other prophets after Moses, these are the kinds of phrases that are the center of the faith of the people. The Christians of the Old Testament, this is how it was expressed to them. In the New Testament, we would say the gospel or the gospel of Christ. Not that the word gospel doesn't occur in the Old Testament, but more prominently we see in the New Testament, the emphasis is the gospel of Christ. This is how we are encouraged to press on. What has God done for us by sending Christ to die for our sins? Verse 25, the result of this promise, reiteration of the promise. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. What's his response to the word of God? We saw earlier in 26.6, he obeyed, right? After that oracle, he obeyed. And in this one, too, we have, in a sense, obedience. But what we have immediately is worship. Right. And in a a sense, obedience is worship. Worship is obedience. They are interchangeable in some senses. So that's what he's doing here. And this is what happened with Moses. When Moses received a revelation of God, when God explained who he is in relation to Moses and people generally, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who shows loving kindness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And then what does it say? And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So immediately he worships God after God reveals himself to him. The same we have with the disciples. That was Exodus 34, 6 to 8. The disciples in Matthew 28, 17. When they saw him, Christ, after the resurrection, it says, they worshiped him. They fell at his feet and they worshiped him, it says. John 9, 38, the man who was blind and healed, when he encountered Christ after it, and Christ said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he? And he said, I who speak to you am he. And he worshipped him. The moment he knew that truth, he worshipped him. And in Revelation 1, 17, John the Apostle, when he sees a vision of Christ, it says, I fell at his feet, As a dead man. When he saw Christ and heard the words of Christ, he saw a vision and heard the words of Christ. It says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He and they, all of these examples are worshiping God by bowing the knee. When they 
have an appearance of God or hear the word of God, it causes them to do that. So should we. When we come across these truths, they should impact us to worship Him, cause us to worship Him. Now, 26, 26 to 33, we have Abimelech in 26, along with a couple of his, his men, officials, coming to Isaac, and they say, or the, uh, Isaac is uh, wondering what the problem is in verse 27. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Uh, by the way, notice Isaac. Isaac is not making this up, right? He's using the true words. Earlier in the chapter, it doesn't say that Abimelech hated him. It only says that in verse, 20, uh, verse 26, 16, go away from us for you are too powerful for us. The fact that Abimelech wanted Isaac to go away, that alone, I think, is an indication that Abimelech hated Isaac. What am I saying? His words, even though Abimelech's words did not say, I hate you, his actions and his words in other ways, like go away from us, implies hatred. And then Isaac correctly interpreted that and announces that to Abimelech. Why have you come to me since you hate me? I say this because often people will deny that they hate you. They will deny that they hate you. Or maybe even we have done that to other people. No, no, if someone says, uh, um, you know, you're, you're really nice, but we can't be friends anymore. You're really nice, or I really love you, but we're going to go to another church. They say things like that. But really, when they say those kinds of things and walk away from you, right. never intending to see your face again, they actually hate you. Because if they loved you, then why aren't they having brotherly fellowship with you? Why don't they desire that? Why don't they want to be around the people of God in that way? So this is what Isaac does to confront Abimelech. Um, Since you hate me and have sent me away from you. 28. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have not done to you not have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace you are now the blessed of the lord isaac is told that we know god is with you they say that twice in verse 28 the lord has been with you and in 29 you are now the blessed of the lord or the blessed of the lord This is who you are. Isn't it strange that Abimelech knows about the Lord? And he also knows to attribute Isaac's blessings to the Lord. But Abimelech doesn't want to believe in the Lord. If he wanted to believe in the Lord, he would not be trying to make this covenant or treaty with him and be so worried that there's going to be a conflict or animosity like this. He knows that Isaac is a very powerful man, perhaps even um, a threat to the city-state kingdom of Gerar. 
perhaps even a threat. But Isaac has no intentions of doing that. We know that, right? But Abimelech wants to make sure of that. He wants to make sure. And why does he want to make sure? Because he doesn't know the Lord. Isaac did not keep the name of the Lord to himself, most likely. But he explained things to the people around him. And they knew about him. They knew about the Lord, but they didn't repent. Which is also true. It's also true. There are so many people uh, under the teaching of the Word of God who know full well what is there, what is expected of them, but then they walk away from it. They will even tell you, I know what you're saying. I know what the Word of God says. I know what the true gospel is. I know what it expects of me. I know who the Lord is. I know, I know, I know. They know, and they say, but I, I want to do such and such, which means I want to pursue a certain sin. And often it's um, money, sex, fame, fortune. These are the common sins that drive people away from the gospel. Abimelech does so. Well, Isaac... He wants peace. He wants to live in peace. And we're all supposed to do so. So then, as far as it depends on you, if possible, be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 17. And in fact, this peace with men is a blessing from God. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Right. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And these examples in uh, 2 Chronicles 17.10 and then 20.29-30, those examples are the dread of the Lord falls on the kingdoms around Jehoshaphat so that they don't want to conduct war against Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. That is, it is God who is causing these things to happen, and even working in wicked men to ensure that there is a barrier between the wicked and the righteous so that the wicked want to have peace with the righteous. Even though they don't believe, they still have enough restraint caused by God to avoid causing problems for us. And that's good. It not only happens here in Genesis, it happens in 2 Chronicles, but it happens throughout the Scriptures. And we should desire that it happens with us. In fact, Romans 13, what is the purpose of the government but to wield the sword against those who do evil? And even a pagan government is supposed to wield the sword against evildoers so that the society can be orderly, can be civil, can be law-keeping, law-abiding. A society, and if that's the case, then the Christians benefit, right? Sure. When there's peace, societal peace, we benefit from that so that we can live in peace. Then in 30, 30 and 31, they hold a feast, which is typical of treaties and covenants when they are made. They hold a feast, they eat and drink. And then they go, they exchange oaths, and then they go away in peace. 
That's an important phrase right there. 31, in peace. Um, and even he, Abimelech and the officials in 29 say, um, earlier they were sent away in peace, which is true. That, that there was no conflict of arms, no violence. We sent you away just by words, but not by violence. And that's the same that happens here. Abimelech is sent away in peace. Then 32, 32 to 33, they find and, and dig another well, and it's named Sheba. Um, therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Sheba. Be'er is the word for uh, well, and Sheba or Sheba is the word for oath. So well of oath is the name of that city to commemorate what happened. Then lastly, we have in 34 to 35. And when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Baeri the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. In both cases, they are identified as Hittites. Now, Hittites, some of them lived in the land of Canaan, and others of them lived in their native, most of them lived in their native land, which was to the north and to the west of the land of Israel or Canaan in modern Turkey. In modern Turkey, that's where the ancient Hittites lived. And some of those Hittites lived in the land of Canaan. You know, not being relatively close, um, they were there. And we're not sure if he saw them or met them because they were natives of Canaan by this point, or whether he actually, in some way, found them from abroad and brought them to the land of Canaan to marry them. It's not clear. But whatever the case is, they were foreigners. And when it says that they were foreigners, it's not that they were from a different language, which they would have spoken a different language. It's not that they were of a different ethnicity, which they were, but it's because of their idolatry. It's because of their idolatry. That is why it says in 35, they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau, being a reprobate, married other reprobates, and the, his sin of unbelief was exacerbated in the women he married because they practiced open and blatant idolatry. They worshipped images. And it would have been more than just one. It would have been numerous images that they worshipped. Their pet deities would have been in the household. And if they are there, whenever Isaac and Rebekah have to deal with them, they're going to have insight. They're going to be provoked and grieved overseeing the idols in the house, in the tent, wherever they go from place to place. And their talk is going to be that way. Their talk is going to be about the idols they worship and everything like that. And there is an, a, an association of, of ethics or morality that come out of that too, which would have been contrary to the ethics of Isaac and Rebekah. So both the theology would have been corrupt, most likely for sure that, but also the morality would have been corrupt. And this brings grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Um, and let's reiterate this point about who he marries and the trouble it causes. 
2746. 2746. This is when Rebecca wants Isaac to, I'm sorry, um, wants Jacob to go away from this land because Esau is, is wanting to murder Jacob. 2746, the last verse. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth, which means the Hittites. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? I think she's real and genuine about this concern. She doesn't want Jacob to marry a Hittite woman. And if he does, she says, what good will my life be to me? Chapter 28, chapter 28, 28, 8. 28.8. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. He says, okay, I, I just learned, and I know, that my parents don't like me marrying these Canaanite women. Because Jacob was sent away to, um, to the land of his relatives outside of Canaan. So in verse 9, he decides he's going to marry a daughter of Ishmael. As though that's going to be an improvement. Right. As though that's an improvement. Because he, it is closer to the family. That, that is true, but it's not really the right thing to do. He does the same. Okay. If it brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah... On spiritual grounds, are we also expected to do the same? We as Christians? Yes. For example, for example, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter six. Second Corinthians chapter six. Verse fourteen. Six fourteen to eighteen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The true believer does not get bound with unbelievers, have no partnership, no fellowship, no harmony, Nothing in common, nothing in agreement with unbelievers because they are idolaters. So we shouldn't be being bound up with them, bound together with them. We have to separate from them, it says. Separate from them and then you will display yourself as being sons of the Heavenly Father. 
But when you mix and mingle with unbelievers like this, then it shows you're not a believer. He's speaking generally, but what is the strongest of all human relationships? Marriage. Marriage is the strongest of all human relationships. So all the more we have to make sure that we and our children and grandchildren, if they are believers, that we pray for them to find a godly wife or the daughters to find a godly husband. We have to pray for that and be very careful as to who they marry. Very, very careful about that matter. Not take it lightly. If we do research on jobs, if we do research on houses, we do research on cars, we do research on all kinds of things, right? Our own health before we act. Right. Why shouldn't we do research on finding a spouse? Why, why shouldn't we be more careful about that? We should. We should because the Bible expects us to do so. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. 739. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Yes, take along in ministry a believing wife. So this is a biblical, a biblical doctrine to be very careful about who we marry. Make sure we marry a true believer the best we can. I, I know that sometimes things are unseen, uncaught, but do the best we can prayerfully, carefully, before God and His Word, do all of that and leave the rest to God. But let's not be um, rash and fickle and blind. I know it's hard to, when one is experiencing that, it's easier for someone beyond that stage of life to say, don't be blind with your love. But still, we have to talk about it and we have to pray and act accordingly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.